Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. We are part of the FreightCast family of podcasts from FreightWaves. And oil is one of the things that we focus on. Oil needs to be drilled to get it, so that's why we call the podcast Drilling Deep. Today, we've got as our guest, Todd Amen. Todd is president and CEO of ATBS, a financial services firm that works with independent owner-operators. As a result, he always has great insight into how drivers are doing financially. No surprise, they're doing great. He's going to be here later to speak with us. But first, let's turn to oil. First, so far, the oil market has mostly dodged a bullet that everybody thought was coming. The fact is that Hurricane Ida started shutting platforms in the Gulf of Mexico almost three weeks ago by the time this podcast is going to be first published. And 17, 18 days later, the amount of production that was still offline as a result of the storm was more than 700,000 barrels a day. That's an astonishing high number. The, the industry usually snaps back a little faster than that. It didn't appear at first the damage was going to be so great that it would have kept the production offline for that long. But did that cause a surge in prices? A surge might have been expected. And up until Wednesday of this week, the price of West Texas Intermediate Crude, compared to the last trading day before Ida, roared on shore, was up only about $2 per barrel. But on Wednesday, the Energy Information Agency, in its weekly report, reported a sharp drop in U.S. crude inventories, about 6 million barrels from the prior week. That was more than some of the projections, though the fact that inventories were down a lot seemed to catch the market by surprise, even though the loss of output in the Gulf of Mexico was inevitably going to result in such a drop. Still, even with that much oil off the market and with new fears about Libyan production as well, Libyan production is always the big wild card in this market, the stability of the past couple of weeks was pretty remarkable. How did it happen? The answer lies mostly in the actions of two governments. One is the government of the U.S. The U.S. has a strategic petroleum reserve whose role is to release crude during times of emergencies. But with the steep decline in U.S. import dependence in recent years, the reserve is actually bigger than it really needs to be. So a few years ago, as part of a budget deal, uh, Congress and the president agreed to begin selling crude out of the SPR. Just a few weeks ago, a scheduled sale went through that put 20 million barrels per day, excuse me, 20 million barrels total onto the market. That actually can cover about 30 days worth of lost Gulf of, Mex of the lost Gulf of Mexico production, at least at the level it's at as I record this. So that has helped soften the blow. The other sale came out of China, where that country recently announced plans to sell oil out of its reserve. Unlike the U.S. sale, this one was not planned and appears to be an attempt by China to put more oil onto the market to pressure down the price. In some sense, it has worked if market analysts are saying that the China sale is one of the reasons why the market has been pressured low, or at least stopped from going even higher. Regardless of the fact that prices might have been steady of late, the market does look like it is going to need more oil. When I used to do a fair amount of TV commentary on networks like CNBC, I knew I had to make my point quickly. They don't give you a lot of time. Uh, you, don't, you just don't get a time to discuss those points of view. So one of the things I did when I wanted to talk about supply and demand was go to an old standby. It's known as the OPEC call. The International Energy Agency, which puts out a monthly report on supply and demand, it gets that number on the OPEC call by taking its estimate on global oil demand, subtracts its estimate on production from non-OPEC countries, subtract, subtracts production of things like propane and butane out of OPEC countries, and then you are left with the call. It's the amount of oil that OPEC needs to produce to keep the market balanced 
or at least to keep any imbalances from growing or shrinking. It's a great number in its simplicity. I will agree that it is not the end all of figures, and things can be a lot more complicated than that, but I do like that number anyway. The IEA came out with its monthly report this week, and also S&P Global Platts came out with its estimate of OPEC production in August. Comparing those two is the sort of thing that I would have done on TV, but I'm going to do it here instead. OPEC production in August was just under 27 million barrels per day. The IEA estimate on the OPEC call going forward is over that number for every quarter in the next six quarters except for one, the second quarter of next year, and even then, it's just barely under what OPEC produced in August. The highest imbalance comes in the fourth quarter of this year, when the OPEC call is 28.2 million barrels per day. Contrast that with the almost 27 million barrels per day OPEC produced in August. It's a gap of 1.2 million barrels. Now, it's not all bad from the perspective of a consumer. The fourth quarter is supposed to be out of balance. That's just the normal ebb and flow of oil markets. But the second quarter is supposed to be out of balance, too, with a lot more production than consumption. But the gap that's projected for next second quarter is actually very small. The other thing that maybe is not all that bad is that OPEC plus group, the OPEC group plus group of countries that includes OPEC and other non-OPEC exporters is expected to put more oil onto the market through the rest of this year. But the IEA report knows this, and it seems optimistic about the supply-demand balance going forward. It appears confident that the OPEC plus group will continue putting more oil onto the market, which would take care of the imbalance that its report suggests. But the IEA does not predict OPEC output, so the call is substituted to complete the model. If the IEA thinks the call is going to be covered by OPEC plus, it doesn't say so. But its commentary in the report does seem to suggest everything will be okay. Diesel, diesel users should hope so, because some of these numbers that are, are starting to concern some analysts enough that they're talking $100 crude oil by the end of the year. Remember, it's about $70 to $75 as I record this. But the fact is that oil prices actually are up less than so many other commodities. Aluminum, for example, recently hit a 13-year high. Oil is nowhere near any sort of high. If it would start to flirt with $100, it would be doing so primarily as a catch-up to what so many other commodities are doing right now. With diesel a little less than a dollar more than where it was a year ago, it may seem crazy, but this rise has actually been somewhat moderate. It's time to turn our attention to something else, and that something else today is Todd Amen. He is the president and CEO of ATBS. ATBS is one of the leading providers of financial services like tax uh, servicing uh, to the independent owner-operator network, and he's in great position at all times. We've had him here before on Drilling Deep to know what's going on financially with the uh, with that that sector of the, the trucking community. So, Todd, thanks for joining us again on Drilling Deep. John, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. So I sat in on your webinar yesterday, and um, about the only thing you didn't have were fireworks and, you know, <laughs> dancing bears to celebrate just how good the independent owner-operator is doing right now. Uh, why don't you give us some numbers and just tell us how good things are? Yeah, gosh, John, uh, it's kind of funny you say that because it it's a time to celebrate, right? Trucking is doing incredible right now, and that filters down to those that do the work. Um, maybe now more than ever, a lot of times uh, it takes a while for good revenue and rate increases to get passed down to drivers, but uh, we're in such a robust market and people are fighting for capacity that it just seems like uh, – 
things are great. So, you know, just at a high level, um, our average driver for the first time since we've tracked it during the last 12 months made an average of net income over $70,000, which is fantastic. It was, you know, just 60,000, just, you know, a couple, couple of years ago. So it's great to see that up. Our, our top 10% of our drivers made over $225,000 net, you know, and those are guys that are in pretty specialized markets. But again, you think about driving a truck and making 70,000 or $225,000, um, it's really good news. And, and we love uh, the market we're in. It's great for everybody. I think the last time we did this podcast uh, was a year ago, and you said you had at least one driver that cracked the 300,000 mark. Do you have any this time? Yeah, gosh, John, we, you know, of course, when you get into multiple trucks, guys make more money, but just a one truck, one driver, you know, we got drivers making a half million bucks when they're in super specialized, heavy all kind of, you know, or, you know, government munitions kind of work, things like that. Um, we got drivers making over half a million bucks a year. Wow, that's that's great, great stuff. So, uh, so the average is way up as well. But the other thing that I really took away from that uh, that I thought was most interesting and really has an impact on macroeconomics is the fact that the miles are so great, the money is so great that people are choosing to work less hours. There, you know, if if you were in economics one hundred and one class in college, they talk about exchanging leisure for wages, and clearly you're seeing that a lot of people are exchanging leisure for wages, and of course, that's one of the reasons why why rates are up because there are people just they're getting satisfied with what they're making, and they're not taking to the road, even though the, the dollars are good. How big a factor is this? You know, there's a couple of things going on there, and and it's always counterintuitive for me, but we've seen it literally for 20 years when the market gets good and rates go up, drivers get more choosy and they pick higher paying, you know, rate per mile loads, and and they run less. They only have a certain amount of money they need to make to pay for their cost of living and their family. And, you know, they work hard, they're away from home. And so when things are good, they'll drive less traditionally. So we didn't see this happen the first half or the second half of last year, kind of, you know, as we got into COVID, things got good, right? In the second half of last year, drivers were making more money. And it was really interesting because drivers ran more miles. So we thought maybe something changed, but, you know, then we get into the first half of this year and they really are running less miles. So last year was just an anomaly. I think everybody didn't know it was an uncertain time. So they figured they better better run as much as they can and make as much money as they can. So we're back in normal times and the miles are down about one and a half percent, you know, so it doesn't sound like a lot. It's 1500 miles uh, on an annualized basis. But when you put that across tens of thousands of trucks, I hear it from every fleet we deal with, not just owner operators, but even company drivers, they're running less um, because they're making more. So Ultimately, that means as an industry, we have less capacity, you know, hauling freight. And uh, that kind of, you know, puts it back on the shippers to have to pay more money to get those trucks to want to haul their freight. There's one more thing that is accounting for less miles. And uh, maintenance is a real burden this year. You know, everybody's busy. Um, shops are busy. The labor is not out there to repair trucks. And so if, if I have a truck repair that I think should take me a couple hours or a day, you know, in some cases that's taking a week or 10 days right now. And that's also impacting the amount of miles, you know, people are able to run. So miles are down. Yeah, what's, I'm wondering what's more lucrative today, being a truck driver or being the person who repairs the trucks? What do you think? You know, I hear people making six figures working in truck shops. I know the labor rate that's being charged is $190 an hour plus. But of course, the shop takes some of that and doesn't pay at all. Um, I think they're 
they're both hard jobs, but I think they're paying better than they ever have. And hopefully that attracts people back into our business. Are you getting any sense whether this kind of market conditions are, are encouraging people to sign on to be lease drivers? Um, I'll tell you what is a challenge. And, uh, you know, we, we look at these numbers and we talk about them with a lot of different people. Um, so fleets are having a hard time attracting capacity. The spot market is so robust and, and there's a differential right now of about a dollar per mile. Meaning if I go run the spot market drive-ins, I can make 250 a mile. If I run for a fleet, I'm going to make between a buck 50 to a buck 75. So that spot market is so robust that it is attracting a lot of the drivers that are capable of running their own business, getting their own authority, getting their own truck into that market. So at the same time, you've got drivers that are company drivers that feel like they're not making the money they should and they can make more money as an owner operator. So they're trading up to get their own truck and getting into some of those lease programs. So I guess I'd say by and large, fleets are struggling to attract capacity. They want to grow and they can't um, because there's just a lot of options out there to make money. Um, so it's a mixed bag, really. Um, we're seeing guys go into that lease business, but, uh, but it's challenging to attract them right now. Now, in a market like this, are the costs of the lease, do the costs of the lease go up? Is it more expensive to get into leasing at a time like this? Or is that kind of a, I won't call it a fixed cost. It's obviously not fixed, but does that go up at any kind of correlation to the increase in rates? You know, not necessarily. Um, I guess I would say they don't correlate one for one, but really what's going on in a robust market is everybody wants to add assets, right? And truck manufacturers have had a hard time making deliveries on trucks. They don't have chips. They don't have parts. Trucks are sitting on finish lines, you know, for months waiting to be finished out to deliver to fleets. So demand for assets is out there. So truck prices have risen. They're at all-time highs, the used truck market, and they were at all-time lows just a year ago. So yeah, the asset cost has gone up. Our average driver is paying $2,500 a month for a truck right now. And, you know, that's up from $2,100 just a couple of years ago. Um, but it's not a one for one just because rates go up doesn't mean truck prices go up necessarily. They just, they are because everybody wants everything right now. All right. Now you, one, one thing in your call was you, you, you mentioned the $70,000 figure on your webinar, and then you, you talked about what flatbed drivers are making. That was about $80,000 more. I, I don't recall hearing a number on reefer drivers, but, uh, do you see people making that switch or, is it you tend to be in drive-in and then you stay there or in the flatbed is its own kind of unique community? Yeah, reefer is a bit lower. They're more in the 64, 65 grand net range. And you do see people kind of swapping in between segments. You know, flatbed is really more cyclical, I think, than the other segments. When it's boom time, people flock to it and they run it because they're making 80 grand a year, right? And so you find more going into that. And then when things slow down and, you know, uh, commercial goods, big products, tractors and construction things slow down and stop moving. Flatbed dries up and those guys go broke or they move out of that segment. So you do see some movement. I wouldn't say, you know, a huge percentage of the population, but you see some percentages moving in between segments as things are better. Why does Reefer make less than, a, let's say, a dry van driver? Well, John, uh, my family used to be in the reefer business. We owned a reefer truck line, and and I guess maybe that's why we're not in that business anymore. I, I ask that question all the time, and I don't get a great answer, but when I look at it from a driver and owner-operator perspective, um, reefer is a little bit of still old-school trucking. I can pick up a load. I can drive 1,100 miles. I can 
shut the door and drive for two days, you know, and not have to worry about a bunch of drop and hook and um, all that kind of stuff. So it's just a little bit more, you know, they typically will run another 10 or 15,000 miles a year versus um, those dry van local regional kind of hauls. So I think it attracts a different kind of a driver. It's a little bit more of the old cowboy style run hard kind of a driver. And I guess they'll do that for less money. Um, maybe just because it's easier than dealing with traffic jams and, you know, dropping a load every day and that kind of stuff. It's, it's crazy to me, but it's been that way and in, uh, forever. I would think that your the size of your clientele, speaking of correlations, is probably a pretty good correlation to the size of the, uh, the size of the network of drivers out there. I would imagine when a lot more drivers come in, ATBS has a lot more clients. And when people start to drop out, me, maybe your client list goes down. If that's the case, first of all, you can you can tell me that I'm correct on that or challenge me. <laughs> if that's the case, what are you seeing going up for capacity right now? I, I think you're right. By and large, John, when the industry is growing, we're growing for sure. Um, so I think it's a mixed bag. I think uh, looking at data, you know, we share data with a lot of people and looking at data from FMCSA, just trucks registered. If you look at the large carriers, over 5,000 trucks, you know, they really haven't grown capacity. They've been um, sideways for probably close to 16 months. And, you know, part of it is discipline. They've learned in the past when we had a lot of trucks, we hurt ourselves and shippers get the upper hand. Um, but a big piece of it is they can't buy assets. They can't get them from the OEMs. They can't find drivers to fill them. And, and so capacity is not growing from the large motor carrier perspective. Then you flip that and you look at the one truck owner operators and they've grown by 60,000 during the last 16 months. And so we're really seeing growth of our client base. And I think capacity in general among the very small, the one truck, one operator. And also the, you know, we've got fleets where we had five, 10 drivers with them. We now have got 40 or 50 drivers with them. So they're adding capacity. And I think maybe a piece of it is they're just able to take more advantage of the high paying spot market freight. They don't have long-term shipper contracts with huge shippers like Walmart and Target and Home Depot and those people, you know, so they're out there making a lot of money right now and drivers are attracted to that. So I guess I'd say overall, I feel like we're adding capacity, but it's not at the pace we have during previous booms in trucking. And that's a good thing. It's frustrating for many of the fleets, but Overall, it's a good problem in our industry because it helps helps keep things in balance for truckers to, you know, manage rates. I mean, you've been through a lot of cycles. Is there anything out there that concerns you now? You know, the kind of the kind of thing that people look at and say, uh, you know, that's a leading indicator. When that happens, that's usually a sign of some bad times ahead. Is there anything like that on your radar right now? You know, what concerns me, John, is when nobody's concerned, and uh, it's almost like going back to last April and May when COVID hit. And we all thought it was the end of the world. We're shutting down. Things are going to stop getting shipped. And uh, by and large, we should have gone into a Great Depression. And the exact opposite happened, right? We had a bunch of government stimulus. The world took off and, uh, and trucking's boomed ever since. And so right now, I, you know, I've met with a lot of large truck lines in the last three weeks. And you know, for sure, we're just heading into the heavy shipping time. It's been a great year. And we're just now heading into you know, Christmas holiday and a lot of stuff being shipped. So people are predicting through the end of this year, um, it's going to be incredible. It's going to get even tougher to find trucks. And I hear people predict all the way through 2022, it's going to be a trucker's market. 
Um, and there's a lot of good arguments that that is going to be the case and I buy them. So the thing that concerns me is that people are not worried um, because something comes out of nowhere and slaps you upside the head and changes what's going on. Um, but I don't know what that's going to be, John. With things so good, are you seeing any shift in the population of independent owners? Not the, not, not the actual numbers, but are they getting any younger? Are you getting more people of color, more women? Uh, the Sikh community, of course, has been an important part of the driver population in this country. Uh, we know that immigration has been a little more restricted the past few years. Is the driver mix changing at all? You know, I do sense that it's getting a bit younger as we get more technology and interesting job. You know, truck driving becomes a more interesting job. Trucks are easier to drive these days, so much more easier with all the safety technology and auto shift transmissions. And I can't say that it's, you know, we now have 20% of the population under 30 years old. We still have the huge challenge of I can't even do this job till I'm 22. And most people that go into blue collar jobs that don't go to college, you know, find that career when they're 18. So this is a second choice after they've either not liked or failed out of their other career. So I can't say a wholesale shift or change, but I do believe we're attracting some more younger people into our business. As far as, you know, women, for sure. Gosh, um, you know, Alan Voigt does a great job with women in trucking and helps, you know, make it known that this is an industry, not just for men. And as trucks are easier to drive, as they're more comfortable, as they feel safer on the road, um, we're getting more and more women. Um, so yeah, it's some good trends. Not enough, but we, we need more, but not, but it is a good trend. You deal with numbers, you deal with the truck bed, uh, truck operator finances. Recently, the uh, IRS announced that the per diem rate is going to go up $3 per day to $69 from $66. How big of an impact is that? I mean, I know, I know what the impact is. I can do the math. But how important is that to finances? I mean, essentially, those are tax-free dollars. They are tax-free dollars, and every dollar that a driver gets to deduct is a help. Um, you know, you're like me. You're like me. Just if you think about spending about sixty-six versus sixty-nine dollars a day on the road for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. On the one hand, that may seem like a lot of money, but the fact that you got to do it every day by only increasing it three dollars, you know, for me, that's and that and that's taken a couple of years to do that. You know, inflation is here hugely, and uh, and these guys' burgers are not going up. You know, by one or two percent, they're going up by ten or twenty percent. You know, the meals and the food and the groceries and the stuff we're buying just ourselves to live, and the same thing's happening to the drivers. So, my opinion is it's not enough of an increase of a per diem for drivers, but um, hopefully, the government will realize that and we'll have another adjustment next year. At $69, does it mostly all get used? Or, I mean, like, that's the earlier point that their costs are going up on the road as well. Well, you know, I'll tell you if a driver's smart, um, they have a refrigerator and a microwave in their truck and they're stocking up groceries to live in their truck like they do at home and they can live on 25 or $30 a day and they're getting a $69 per day deduction. But, but in the end, it's just all part of the picture, right? So you do have drivers who will eat out breakfast, lunch, and dinner and, uh, and they'll spend that amount and more. So, um, I, I think it's a fair tax deduction. It's been around for a long time. And don't forget, they also discount that by 80%. Um, or by 20%, truck drivers can only take 80% of that $69 deduction. Um, so it's kind of confusing, but uh, it is a very good deduction at the end of the day. It's fifteen dollars to $20,000 tax deduction for owner-operators. 
Uh, I'm going to ask you one more question that has nothing to do with finances, but it's one that I know is on a lot of people's minds right now in the trucking industry. You have the vaccination mandate uh, that's coming for companies with 100 or more employees, not drivers. Uh, I spoke to a couple of heads of state trucking associations last week for a story that we're due, we did for Freightways, and they're hearing a lot from this sort of split in the community. The fleets that are under 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 100 employees are thinking, wow, this is a great opportunity to add to my roles. Um, and the ones over are worried about losing them to the smaller ones. Are you hearing anything about that? I'm hearing a lot about it. Um, I'm hearing concern for one. Uh, you know, in the last two days, talked to five fleets, large fleets, over thousands of trucks, and they're working on contingency plans. What if this goes through? What do we have to do? And, you know, so if you think about it from a real world perspective, um, I, I said it yesterday in an interview with somebody, this physically and logically cannot happen in trucking. If you implement this mandate, 100 employees or more, you either have to have the vaccine. So you have to have the vaccine. Truck drivers, by their nature, um, are not vaccine people, right? Maybe much less than the normal American um, just because of who they are. So let's just say half, like like a lot of America, half don't have the vaccine. They're not going to go get the vaccine, even if you tell them they have to. The truck lines can't fire them, right? Because we don't have enough capacity to begin with. So the alternative is we have to test them every week for COVID if they don't have the vaccine. When we can't, when we have a really hard time doing random drug tests every year for drivers, how are you going to test a truck driver every week for COVID if they don't have the vaccine? You know, so I guess the way I think about it is the U.S. Postal Service had an exemption the day after this was announced. Um, at some point, someone's going to wake up and realize this is not a feasible thing to implement in trucking. Um, but unfortunately, like the world works, when when the government says we're going to do something, trucking has to make plans for what if this actually does go through. But my bet is at the end of the day, it can't happen in trucking. Yeah, and, and their lawyers have told them they've got to comply as well because uh, you never know which will be the company that's been chosen to be made an example of, and you don't want to be the one. No doubt about it. It's it's a big deal. Um, but we already have shelves not getting stocked because we don't have enough trucks on the road, right? So, you know, pull 100,000 or pull a half a million drivers off the road because of a vaccine mandate, and we'll see how long that lasts. All right, Todd, we want to thank you for joining us again on Drilling Deep, and we will like to have you one, and I was going to say one more time, many more times, uh, as we go forward, you've always got great insights. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Good to talk to you, man. Have a great day. And it is Driver Appreciation Week. So I just want to yes, shout out to all the drivers. Thank you for what you do. Um, we love you. We appreciate you. And God bless you. Drive safe. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freight Waves. I'm your host, John Kingston. You can find us on all the leading platforms for podcasts, and we hope you do. And the fact that you're listening is maybe you already did. Please join us again.